Thank you all. We have wrapped up our series in Matthew. Uh, we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount. And as we approach Easter, we're going to skip in the book of Matthew. We're going to stay in the book. And we're going to go all the way to Matthew chapter 28. And uh, we're going to basically, as, as Easter approaches, we're going to take Matthew 28. And we're going to go all the way through it. It's traditionally the chapter that you think of uh, when we talk about the Great Commission, what Jesus tells his disciples to do now that he is, is risen. But really, in, in the book of Matthew, it caps off everything that's been going on in the gospel. It is the Great Commission, but it's also the resurrection. And, and those things really are, are connected. You can't separate those things. And so uh, that's what we'll be uh, preaching about in the morning service as we lead up to Easter. As I preach, I've, I've been... Uh, some of you have, have noticed that I have this tendency to sort of twirl my wedding band. Uh, this was... was given to me by Michelle when we uh, became engaged, and she began shopping for, for a wedding band, um, knowing that I've never been much of a jewelry kind of a person. I've never worn watches or rings all that much. They just kind of bother me. And uh, so I have this tendency to, to twirl it, and, and contrary to some of the, the smart aleck remarks I've received from some of you, this doesn't mean I want to take it off and not be married. It's just... Uh, just this tendency I have. And uh, so not, not long after we got back from our honeymoon, I was do I've done this ever since it's been on my finger, I think. And, and we were at First Baptist Waco, and uh, we were just attending. And uh, we stood up for the invitation. And, and as we're seeing the invitation, I'm, I'm doing this. And, and if you've ever been at First Baptist Waco, you know the seating is kind of stadium-like. It kind of is angled down a little bit. And, and as I'm twirling the ring and it comes off my finger and it begins to roll down their sanctuary. And it's rolling under the pews and under the people. And, and I noticed that in front of us, it was during the summer, so there were not a lot of people there. And you could see very clearly uh, the layout of the sanctuary. And I, and I noticed several pews up there was an air conditioner vent in the floor. And, and I wasn't 100% sure, but it looked like that air conditioner vent with, had openings in it. Uh, just just large enough for a ring this size to fit in it. And so immediately as we're singing the invitation, I'm on the floor and I'm crawling under these pews and I'm sure the whole church was wondering what kind of Pentecostal holy roller guy had, had attended their Baptist church that morning. Now, incidentally, that was the last time we attended First Baptist Waco. But I, I found my ring a couple pews in front of me and uh, you would think that would have taught me a lesson and I would have quit twirling it, but, but I still do it. And Michelle scolds me when she sees me do it. One of these days, you're going to really lose it, and then I'll just spend money on a new one. How, how are you going to like that? <laughs> now, to be fair, I warned her before we were married. I, I don't wear a lot of jewelry. That's not really, you know, I, I kind of struggle with it, and I don't know how well I'll be able to handle wearing a ring on my finger. In fact, I said, well, how would you feel if I just wore a, a wedding band like on a chain around my neck? Would that be okay? And the look I received after asking that question uh, did not require any words to follow up regarding that. But I will admit, Michelle was willing to, to compromise a little bit. And so the ring that she bought me is, is not, it, it kind of looks like white gold, but it's not. It is a titanium. And if you know anything about metal, titanium is a lot lighter uh, than gold. And so it feels, compared to what a gold ring would feel like, it feels 
very light on my finger. It's, it's the next best thing to not having a wedding ring at all. She's not in here yet. That's good. I did get permission to say that, though. She bought that knowing that that, that would be an issue. But here's the thing. You know, when it comes to that, really, it's, it's not too big of a deal. When you get married, there's a lot more things. There are, a lot, there are many other things other than just wearing a ring that change, aren't there? There's many things that you have to make allowance for that, that kind of change your life. That You could even use the word that sort of disrupt the normal flow of your life. And so uh, I've, I've become used to it for, for the most part. I still take it off from time to time. In fact, as I was writing the sermon, I just kind of had it. I'll sit it you know, right in front of me so I know where it's at. I don't lose it. But it's a reminder to me every time I have to twirl it or keep track of it. Uh, it's a reminder that, that marriage really is supposed to be something that sort of changes your life. That makes you mindful of something else that's going on. Of the other person that you're with. It should, really. A marriage should disrupt your life. And so Jesus uses that metaphor of marriage to talk about his relationship with the church. He talks about the church as being the bride of Christ. And as we think about Jesus coming back from the grave for, for the church, we recognize that, that, man, that should have some powerful implications on, on our relationship with him. It should, it should disrupt our life, shouldn't it? Will Willeman is a, is a famous Methodist bishop and pastor. And, and a skeptical friend of his, uh, you know, they're on the, the left wing of, of Christianity, and so even though he affirms the resurrection, he's friends with a lot of folks that kind of are not sure if Jesus really rose from the dead or not. And, and, and a friend of his says, why do you need to believe in a literal, literal resurrection? Why do you want to believe in a literal resurrection to affirm your faith in Christianity? And he responded in sort of a tongue-in-cheek way. He says, well, I'll be honest, and this is my paraphrase of his response, I'll be honest, I'm not sure every day that I want to believe in a literal resurrection. He said, you know, I, I've kind of had my life and, and I, 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 I'm a professor and I've made my name in the field of religion and, and things are pretty good for me. And, and I'm in control, I feel like, of everything in my life. But he said, if you affirm the resurrection, which, which he does, he says, if you affirm the resurrection, then the possibility... That, that the women in the gospel, when you look at the women in the gospel and recognize that they were afraid that first Easter morning, you recognize the implications of the resurrection. And we're going to read about that in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, and, and we're going to read the first 10 verses today. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you were looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He is not here, he is risen, just as he has said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell the disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. Then you will see him. Now I've told you. 
So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid, yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. And so this was the very first task of the women who had gone to the tomb. It was their first task as people that had not only witnessed the resurrection, but, but had to believe it. In order for their faith to be complete, they had to believe it. And this was the first task Jesus gave them, to go and tell the other disciples. And gosh, there's a big distance between where we're at, isn't there, and where they were regarding the resurrection. A lot of time has, has, has filled that gap, that distance. But the faith that they have and, and the difference, the disruption, really, that it made in their lives and should make in our lives is the same. Because for them and us, living as people of the resurrection is going to look differently. And you don't have notes this morning. I'm going to put it on the screen, but, but I'll have some points. But I, I just want you to listen this morning. If you want to try and make notes, if you're a note person, that's fine. But I'll be talking about how living as people of the resurrection is going to look, has to look. And, and the first thing is that it looks shocking. It, it is. It has to be shocking. I read a story about a little boy named Gabriel Hurls. And when he turned six, he was expecting normal presents for his birthday. You know, the kind of thing that little boys get. Bicycles and action figures and Thomas the Train and maybe his favorite movie on a DVD. And he kind of made a list and listed all those things out. And, and as his birthday came closer, he expected he might get some of those. And, and maybe he would get a surprise or two from his parents. And, and as his party began, he was sitting with all of his friends, and, and he had the pile of presents that his, his friends had, had brought him. And uh, he was looking at his cake, and, and he didn't notice that there was a really large present in the corner of his room. And one of his, one of his friends showed it to him, and, and they went there together, and they began unwrapping that present. And, and it wasn't a physical thing. It wasn't anything on his list. It turned out it was his father, spe uh, Army Specialist Casey Hurls. He was home on leave uh, from Iraq, and, and he knew that he'd be home, and, and, and he timed that just right, had himself physically wrapped and, and placed in a gift uh, to celebrate with his child, and, and I can only imagine that as, as Gabriel opened that and, and found his father, whom he'd been away from for, for nearly a year, that all the other presents that he put on his list suddenly seemed not quite as important. Compared to the, the physical presence of his father, all those other things were not nearly as important. And that's the gift is Jesus, Jesus rises from the grave and, and the women are there. That's the gift they're going to experience, the physical presence of their Lord. But before we get there in the story, we read about the guards, don't we? And my goodness, can, can you imagine what the guards experience? They, they don't even get to see Jesus. There's the light and the flash and the angel. And verse 3 says, The angel's appearance was like lightning. And his clothes were white as snow. And I'm not even sure what that means. So I, think, I think Matthew's just trying the best way that he can to describe what it was like for the guards. Kind of just describing it from their perspective. It follows an earthquake and there was a big flash. And they're not even sure what they're looking at. You ever experienced something like that? Sometimes people will talk about looking at a natural wonder and just sort of not, their brain not really knowing what they're looking at. 
to begin with, whether it's the Grand Canyon or the, or the Niagara Falls, and they're just sort of, it takes them a minute to sort of compute what they're looking at. Of course, we have videos of those things, we have photos, and so if you're going to go look at something like that, you kind of can prepare yourself. But they had no preparation to experience what they were going to experience as Jesus rose from the grave. And so verse 4 says, The guards were so afraid of him, of the angel, that they shook. They became like dead men. They, they passed out. And they didn't see Jesus. They weren't the first witnesses of the resurrection because they didn't see Jesus. They saw the guards. And Sometimes I wonder what would have happened if God would have allowed these guards to see Jesus. Would they have gone on from this point? Because you keep reading Matthew and you find out, well, they're going to go and, and they're going to be told by the high priest to lie and to say that, that Jesus' body was stolen. That would have been a lot more difficult for them to do had they really seen him. But that didn't happen. And sometimes I wonder, for us today, what if Jesus would have come back in, in the 21st century when everybody had a smartphone, you know? Wouldn't it be great if, we, if someone would have had a smartphone and said, oh, look, there's Jesus. It's posted on Facebook so everybody can see. Like and share if you agree, right? That'd be convenient, but, but I'm not sure that would make much of a difference. Because the thing about the resurrection is, is it's shocking. It really is. It's faith that, that God came to earth and he died and he came back from the grave and... and you know, we don't have physical proof of that. But I don't think any amount of physical proof is going to make that any less shocking. Or it should, shouldn't it? And for those of us that believe that and have grown up believing that, for many of you, you might say jokingly, there, there's not a time where you don't really remember not believing in that. And so what can happen is, is for us, that can lose just, just how shocking it is. It loses its shock value. And when that loses its value, there's, there's a danger there that it's, that it's not going to really be the thing that motivates us to serve the Lord. Your faith really is shocking. And, and so that, not that we should walk around being afraid all the time, but that should provoke us to action as believers. It made the guards pass out, but it provoked the, the women to action. I read a story about uh, a man named Michael Joyce, who was, uh, he was only 68, but he had Alzheimer's. And he'd lost, he was in that middle stage where he was forgetting people. And, and sometimes he didn't even know who his own wife was. Uh, but one day, he, he not only recognized who she was, but he recognized just how much he loved her. But he forgot he was married to her. And so he proposed to his wife. And, and she was interviewed by an online publication. And she said, you know you don't just say, oh, we're already married. And so she told him, yes, I'll, I'll marry you. And, and she said, I, I wasn't really sure if he would remember that. But, but the next day he woke up and, and he asked her, well, when are we going to do this? And she, she said, when are we going to do what? And he said, when are we going to get married? And, and so they set a date. And again, she wasn't really sure if he would remember the, the date when he woke up on that day that they were supposed to get married. But j just in case they... Uh, selected a place. It was at a lake by their home, and it was kind of private. And they were going to have friends and family. And, and sure enough, that day he woke. He, the day that he woke, he was ready. He said, "Today's the big day." And so they had a little ceremony. Uh, is that something that was he was going to remember a year from then, or six months from then, or even a week from then? I I don't know. But 
But the thing that made that possible was, was the love that his wife had for him. Uh, when you're in a place like that, the thing that makes recognition possible is, is, is that you recognize that there's something about that other person that, that even if some of the, the details have become blurry, there's something about that person that loves you. They, they've done something on your behalf. They're doing something for you. And it's because of who they are, it's because of who she was that he responded. When the angels tell the women, don't be afraid, they're telling, he's telling the women that. Not because, hey, you don't have to be afraid because you're big and tough. But he's telling them that because, because the thing that, that Jesus said he was going to do, he's, he's done it. And because of who he is, you don't have to be afraid. And we know why he said that, but of course we know that they're going to be afraid, right? We say that to people sometimes. Sometimes we say it to our kids. I say it to my kids when they go to the doctor or the dentist. And you know that they're probably going to be afraid a little bit, but you say it to them. I remember my grandpa said that to me when I was about to shoot my, my very first deer. And even though it was only 100 yards away and it was not very big, I was still afraid. And I was pumped full of adrenaline. But he's mad. Don't be afraid. It's okay. I was still a little bit afraid. I remember my father said that to me after his mother and my grandmother passed away suddenly from a heart attack. And we're approaching the casket. And I'd never really looked at a dead body before. Don't be afraid. But I was a little bit. We say that to people, not because they're big and strong, and we know for sure if we say it, they're not going to be afraid, but because, because we know that whoever it is, especially if it's a child, we're, we're there for them. And, and they cannot be afraid, not because of themselves, but because of who we are. When Jesus rose from the grave, the angel says, He is risen just as He said. He'd been telling them, this is what's going to happen. You don't have to be afraid, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. At least three other times in the book of Matthew, he tries to talk to his disciples. And I think these ladies were with him when he says, hey, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to come back from the grave. And the angel says that, that he's risen from the dead. He's going ahead of you in verse 7 into Galilee. And it's because of what he's done. That you don't have to be afraid. Not because of your charisma. Not because of your standing and stature in society. They were women. And back then women had no standing or stature. And really they had every reason to be afraid. As they go around and they're saying. Hey there's this guy. And, and really y'all killed him. Because y'all thought that he might you know, start a revolution. And, and he came back from the grave. And you know. If they, didn't kill, if, if they weren't going to be killed. They should have been afraid. They were going to be thrown into a crazy house or something. The angel says it's because of what Jesus has done, what he's told you that he's going to do. You don't have to be afraid. And you can do what he tells you you need to do. And you've probably heard, if you've been to church for a little while, and you've heard a few sermons, you've probably heard lots of sermons that tell you what, what the pastor thinks that you should be doing, right? Or what you need to do. And as a pastor, I've preached some sermons like that. And sometimes we need to include those things in our sermons. And I could give you a list of the things that I think that the church doesn't do well. I could give you a list of things that I feel like our church doesn't do well. I could make you feel really bad, probably. Just give you a whole list. And, and you'd walk out of here and you'd feel really bad. And it might motivate you for a day or so. But guilt, guilt is not a lasting motivator. Guilt and, and doing things because we feel like we should. There's not life 
in that. And that's not what the angel is, is telling the, the women to go and do. Can you imagine if the angel would have said, all right, ladies, here you are and you're afraid. And gosh, did, Jesus told you he was going to come back from the dead. Are, are you dumb? I mean, did you forget that? Can, can you just, just go tell the disciples, golly, no. He says he's risen just as he told you. Don't be afraid. Rejoice in that. Live the life that you have in Christ now that he's come back from the grave. You can act on it. And he tells them you can do it. This is the last thing. He tells them they can do it with confidence. David Slagle notes kind of comically that his son doesn't understand the difference between the confidence that he has in Jesus or the Bible and the confidence he can have in, in other sources. He said, we were at the grocery store, and, <clears throat> and my son says to me one day, Dad, do you believe in the Bermuda Triangle? And he says, well, if you're asking me if I believe that that's an actual place, well, yes, I believe that's an actual place. If you're asking me if I believe all the things about you know, ships disappearing and airplanes disappearing and, and all the things that surround that and, and sort of the folklore, he says, no, I, I don't think that's true. And his son says, well, I believe it. Do you want to know why? And his dad said, sure, tell me why. He said, well, this one time I was watching Scooby-Doo. And, you know, he did what a lot of us do when, 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 when it's convenient to place our confidence in things that, that's, that's easy, that's right there, that's right in front of us, that, that appears easy to believe, that we just kind of want to believe. I love this quote, though, and I'll put it on the screen for you from Rabbi Zacharias. He says, faith is confidence in the person of Jesus Christ and in his power so that even when his power does not serve my end, my confidence in him remains because of who he is. Not because of me, but because of who he is. You know, before this encounter at the tomb, uh, the, the, the women, the women in the empty tomb, they they had confidence in Jesus, uh, but, but the thing that they, they are told to go and they're told to go and tell the disciples, they go and they do that, but it's not because later they see Jesus. I think there's this misconception. We read this and that they see the angel and then they see Jesus and then they're sent out and they go do what they're told to do. But actually, actually they receive the news from the angel and they go and, and there's, I love this, this phrase. Uh, it says the women hurried away from the tomb afraid are still afraid, yet filled with joy because Jesus had done what he said he was going to do. They were filled with joy because of the confidence that they had in Jesus. And they responded to go and do what the angel said even before they met Jesus on the road. Now, the end of Matthew is different from some of the other Gospels that talk about the resurrection. It, it gives us a little, it gives us fewer details regarding who Jesus appeared to. It talks about Jesus going and appearing in Galilee to his disciples. And, and, and it leaves out some of the things that, that Mark and Luke talk about, about Jesus uh, going to Jerusalem and, and appearing to his disciples as they're in an upper room, as they're eating a meal, uh, as they're behind closed doors. And I don't think it's because he doesn't know about those instances. I think it's because... He has a different thing that he wants to communicate. And I think this little tidbit that he puts in here about the women is one thing that he includes because he wants to say, look, these, these ladies were on their way doing what they had confidence that Jesus had already done for them. They were responding in obedience to that. And, and it wasn't because they saw him physically. 
They were already on their way to do it. Because, you know, if, if you look at that verse, you look at verse 9 where, where that just little brief encounter with Jesus is where they worship him. You could remove that verse totally. And, and the story, the narrative, the flow would still be there. It wouldn't change what ultimately happens, does it? But he includes that. Matthew includes that, I think, to show us the confidence that these ladies had in Christ, even in the face of their fear. Don't be afraid, the angel tells them, probably knowing that they're going to be a little bit afraid. You know, one of the most powerful lines, most powerful contemporary lines, I think, that's been written about the resurrection is, is by, uh, it's sung by Keith and Kristen Getty. It's, it's written by someone else. Uh, but there's this stanza in the song, In Christ Alone, that says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. He commands my destiny from the beginning to the end. Not Jesus has secured my destiny, and so I get to go to heaven and Everything else doesn't matter, but he commands it from the beginning to the end. That's what, what an amazing expression of what the resurrection is supposed to be. It's life now, beginning now, because Jesus came back from the grave. Can you say that Jesus really commands your life? Not just that you, well, I believe in the resurrection. I've always believed in the resurrection. But because of the resurrection, Jesus commands what you do at work and what you do at home and what you do at school and what you do with your family. Here's the difficult thing to consider. We want to believe in, in, in an afterlife, in heaven, and all that. But if Jesus doesn't command someone's life right now, what, what makes heaven something to even look forward to? Why do you want to be in his presence if, if he doesn't have your life right now? On Wednesday night, our men are going through uh, a study in the book of John. It's, it's a video series uh, by a, a former professor and mentor of mine named Dr. Bob Utley. And he's, he's presented this quote to us like three times so far. We've just been kind of chewing on it and thinking about it. And uh, I think it's entirely appropriate as, as we close this morning and think about the resurrection. They'll put it for you on the screen. He's, this is what he says about the gospel. He says, I've come to believe that the gospel is a person to be welcomed, truths about that person to be believed, and a life like that person to be lived. And I think what he says about that quote is even more powerful than the quote itself. He says, as a pastor and professor, people are always coming up to me and they're asking me, which one of those things can I leave out and still go to heaven? Which one of those things can I leave out of my Christian life and still get to heaven when I die? But the resurrection is not about death. It's about life. Pray with me. Lord, we do thank you for rising from the grave, for overcoming death, for defeating it. And God, in the same breath, we say, forgive us for, for the way that, that 